athletic competition. It can easily be broken down into two parts. The minutes or hours it takes to complete the event. Then weeks, months, and years of joy or heartbreak. Finally, the decades to analyze and debate it. From the press box to press row, Donald Ware will break it all down for you with an in-depth look at historically black college athletics, as well as the biggest news stories and newsmakers of the day. It's time to talk the talk with those who walk the walk. From the press box to press row, here's your host, Donald Ware. It is time for some action here on Box to Row. I am your host, Donald Ware. It is also time for some action in the NBA. Things got restarted in the NBA on Thursday after the break. And we'll see how the last third of the season plays out. You look at the fixed Suns, no Chris Paul. That is going to be huge, although the Suns may not win at the clip in which they won having Chris Paul. And by the way, I mean, Chris, this is about as healthy. I think last year, I, I can't remember if uh, Chris Paul was healthy last year, but this is about as healthy as Chris Paul has been throughout the course of two-thirds of this season. But I think the Suns are ultra-talented that ultimately they're going to be okay. I think they're still going to be that team right now in the West. I, I still like the Golden State Warriors. I d will, you know, if, if Wiseman comes back, like I think that takes the Warriors over the top. You look at Klay Thompson and how Klay Thompson has played also. But I think there's going to be some renewed energy also for Stephen Curry. You look at Curry struggled. I mean, I mean, if you look at his numbers, if you look at strictly the numbers throughout the course of this season, they are down from past seasons. But that all-star game, boy, he put on an absolute show in the All-Star game, scoring the 50 points in that game. So I think he's going to be a little bit rejuvenated. And so I, I still I still think the Warriors have an opportunity coming out of the West. But, of course, we're going to talk some NBA here on the program. And uh, we're going to get a lot into the National Basketball Association. Joining us today here on Box to Row, Alana Myers-Taylor is the most decorated woman and black athlete in Winter Olympic history. Won a silver medal in the monobob and then won a bronze medal in the two-woman bobsled with her partner, Sylvia Hoffman. So we're going to be joined by Alana Myers-Taylor here on the program. Very much looking forward to to that conversation. I don't know. You'll have to help me out on this. I don't know if it's, and I'm not, I guess I'm just not sure if it's, if the year is 2022 or 2005. And I want somebody to help me out with this. I, I, I don't know if this is 2022 or 2005 because Aaron Rodgers 
is acting just like Brett Favre did in 2005 and then even beyond that when Brett Favre had been originally drafted by the Green Bay Packers then had to sit a couple of years behind Brett Favre and behind all of his shenanigans and will he play, will he not play, does he want it, will he retire, does he want to be traded ultimately. He ended up playing for both uh, the latter part of his career, the Vikings and the Jets. But I, f- I mean, why is Aaron Rodgers doing this? I mean, whatever. At the end of the day, the Packers decided a couple of years ago to take Jordan Love, moved up, and ultimately took him. I think the one thing that we're not talking enough, I mean, it's being talked about, but to me it's not being talked enough about, and I've said this before. You've got back-to-back-to-back 13-3 and seasons and no Super Bowl to show for back-to-back 13-3 and seasons. There's no question about it. That is an issue, and coming up short once again. Now, we can look at, and, and to rehash it a little bit, we can look at the Packers. Ultimately, the special teams did not come through for the Packers. At the same time and in the same breath, ultimately, Aaron Rodgers did not come through for the Packers either. You go back to last year's NFC Championship game. We can talk about Matt LaFleur ultimately wanting to or opting to kick that field goal opposed to going for it on fourth down uh, with the Packers, I think, down by seven at that point. And the offense was stagnant. He had an opportunity. I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty. when we're all sitting around watching the game where Aaron Rodgers, again, going back to the 2000, the NFC Championship game in 2021 against the Buccaneers, when I think it was second down, he could have run and opted to pass. It was an incomplete pass. So I'm not, I mean, I'm not looking at that play in particular, but again, it was first and goal, and the offense was so stagnant on three plays that LaFleur opted to kick the field goal. And at the time, I can remember thinking, that's not a bad move. I had no problem with that move. Let your defense come back and play and give that offense time to reset, to regroup, and come back and try to ultimately win that football game. Rodgers has had so many opportunities, hasn't been to a Super Bowl since 2011, when he ultimately won it. Yes, he's won a multitude of MVPs, four MVPs, but only one Super Bowl to show for it, and he's acting like this. Listen, if I am the Packers, it may be time to reset. We don't know what Jordan Love is. Maybe some in the Packers organization feel like Jordan Love is not where they think Love should ultimately be, but ultimately he hasn't had much of an opportunity either. Man, I think when you look at the game against the Chiefs, this past year, like it wasn't awful. Like it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't good, but it wasn't awful either. And I just don't know if you can say in one game or limited amount of games that this kid can ultimately play or not. I think you can get some value ultimately for Rodgers. Um, and I mean, I think the main thing is to re-sign Devontae Adams. I think your offensive line is pretty good. The running game is good. The defense is solid. They have some issues with the salary cap. Like there's, they they have major issues. Meaning the Packers, major issues with the salary cap. So I mean, it, it, it's not that easy 
But, I mean, there's a lot of different things you can do to maneuver and manipulate, quite frankly, that salary cap. So, I don't know, man. Like, I'm just so fed up with this Aaron Rodgers situation. It's taking me back because I remember when we first came on the air back in the summer of 2005, this was the one of the main topic topics of conversation that we had for several weeks here on Box to Road. That's why I asked the question, is it 2005 or 2022? And ultimately, Aaron Rodgers is holding Green Bay hostage to some degree. But I also think that Green Bay is allowing itself to be held hostage. Listen, I mean, I get it. You want him to come back. I'm not just saying throw him out. But what I am saying is, I mean, all of these, all of what he's going through, he said he was going to come back with a decision ultimately earlier rather than later. And we're in the period of franchise tagging players, right? Although, I mean, I get it. You don't necessarily franchise tag players. Uh, you, You generally would franchise, or a lot of times you franchise tag players later in the process or closer to the deadline than you do ultimately in the beginning of the process because you're still trying to work out a contract situation perhaps. It's just ridiculous, man. I'm really, you know, I'm over it. Like I'm over the whole Aaron Rodgers situation. So we ultimately, again, see how that plays out as well. So a lot to get to on today's program you can always join us here on the conversation on our twitter page at box to row b-o-x-t-o-r-o-w follow us while you're there if you as you of course you have the program locked on box to row radio as well as on sirius xm channels 141 142 and 84 so we talked a little bit about chris paul and the fact that chris paul could miss the rest of the or the remainder of the regular season. It's important to note that. Let's look at the East. So this is where politics and sports intersect. Talked about this early on with the whole Kyrie Irving situation. The city of New York and politics don't care much about sports, okay, in terms of making decisions based upon sports. So, of course, The vaccine mandate came about within New York City, whether you agree with it or not, whether you like it or not. um, It came in and and it was what it was. But now the mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, says that the vaccination mandate could be eased along with the mask mandate, paving the way for Kyrie Irving to play in New York City and specifically in Brooklyn. Only like something like what, eight games uh, where Kyrie Irving could play of the remaining 23 games or whatever it is for the Nets. But now if you have that situation, you've got a healthy Kevin Durant, Ben Simmons. I mean, I, I you know, Ben Simmons to me is, is, is the cherry on top. I think Brooklyn can win a championship with KD and Kyrie. But now you add Ben Simmons, like I said before, give me a couple of points, give me 10 points, but lock down that offensive player on the opposite team. And now we're talking if we're the Brooklyn Nets. 
Still to come here on Box to Row, some more NBA talk. Also, still to come, our Black History Month Listen Back features the first black general manager in the NBA, Wayne Embry. Wayne Embry, the first black general manager in the NBA, is our Black History Month Listen Back. But up next, we're going to catch up with Daytona 500 winner, Austin Cindric, you've got it locked to Box to Row. Precious Rose Dunlap, and this is my mother, Michelle Timlake Rowe, founder of Marjorie's Beef Jerky Incorporated. We would at this time like to thank our new customers as well as our repeating customers for your business. For every one million orders that we receive, our company is giving two million dollars away to the bottom amongst 400 of our paid customers. You see, that's the way we roll. So come place an order at www.marjoriesbeefjerky.com. That's www.marjoriesbeefjerky.com. Marjorie's Beef Jerky is the best tasting beef jerky on this planet. Marjorie's Beef Jerky.com. Yeah, that's right, because that's the way we roll. The old Renaissance is the new Renaissance, standing on tradition while embracing the spirit of distinction. This is the Harlem Brewing Company. Uniquely crafted beer brewed to deliver a taste, a sound, and a feeling that can only be described in one way, Harlem style. So come and take a trip on the A-Train with our Harlem Sugar Hill Golden Ale and our Harlem Renaissance Whip Beer, the neighborhood original. Sponsored by Harlem Beer Distributing North Carolina. Served in total wine all over North Carolina. Fresh market in North Carolina and Virginia. Weaver Street Market in Raleigh, Durham, Carborough, and Hillsboro. You can also purchase in Durham at Zwelly's, Saltbox, Sam's Bottle Shop, and Bull McCabe's, and in Greensboro at Elm Street Lounge and Cooper's Ale House. The others pretend you're listening to the show that brings you up close and personal. Up close and personal. With the biggest names in sports and entertainment. Here's the man to bring it to you, Donald Ware. Let's continue here on Box to Row. Austin Sendrick wins his first NASCAR Cup race series. And wouldn't you know it, at the Super Bowl of racing, the Daytona 500. He drives the number two Ford Mustang for Team Penske. It was just his eighth Cup series start. Austin Sendrick joins us here on Box to Row. Austin, congratulations and welcome to the program. Awesome. Thanks, sir. Absolutely. Your thoughts, I mean, for your, this is your second Daytona 500, but to win it, uh, just take us through that and what that ultimately means to you. I mean, it's, it's a racer's dream and, you know, just showing up to Speed Weeks and to be able to have a, a ride in the show and, and to be able to race um, in, in front of a sold out crowd, uh, let alone have the finish that we did. But, uh, but to win the race, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty surreal and it, it's pretty hard to kind of imagine myself in that role but uh but here we are daytona 500 champs and um i couldn't be happier and in overtime no less right 
Yeah, overtime finish. Uh, we we had a red flag to think about how that would play out, and uh, Ryan Blaney and I coordinated the, the restart really well together to give us you know both a shot to win the race off of turn four for you know, for, for Roger Penske. So uh, I, I couldn't be happier about it, and it obviously worked out really well for for us on the two team and um, the, the way the way it uh, the way it panned out. I mean, that's that's high stakes. You're 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 leading the Daytona 500 with two laps to go. He's very well aware that it's your race to lose, and uh, but you know everyone behind you wants what you got. So you got to hold off the wolves there off of turn four and. Um, you know, bring bring home you know definitely the biggest win of my career. No question. I mean, it's an interesting dynamic there because you mentioned Blaney as a as a teammate, and, and at times you you know you want to help your teammate out. Uh, but you know, this was the the dynamic where you were able to get out front and ultimately hold off Bubba Wallace. You won this race by point zero three seconds. Yeah, I mean, that's as close as the margins come. Uh, obviously, the competition level's high, and like I said, the runs were coming. So um, to, to be able to coordinate the restart like we did, and um, I, think, I think my spotter, Doug Campbell, did an awesome job giving me the right information I needed. And, uh, you know, we ran up front the entire race, so uh, it really helped me understand where the runs were going to be coming from and uh, how, to, how to either control them or, if I was in their position, how to, how to make them stronger. So keying off of that information and feedback was, was pretty important for me, and, uh, be, being able to uh, to execute there at the end that's 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 where it counts and that's where the money's on the line and um, it's just a total team effort. Austin Sendrick, uh, Daytona 500 winner, drives the number two Ford Mustang for Team Penske joins us here on Box to Rose, the first rookie to win the race. Can you speak to being able to stay in contention despite all of the crashes during the race? Yeah, I mean that's that's the that's the key part, and that what that's what makes this uh, type of racing really challenging is that you are in a pack the entire race and racing you know two inches or bumper to bumper off of each other at, at nearly 200 miles an hour. So uh, there's bound to be some uh, some contact and some carnage and in, in being able to manage that. But uh, I told my crew chief halfway through the race that we needed to have track position by by the start of stage three and. Um, you know the pit crew and, and Jeremy really executed an awesome stop to to be able to deliver that for me. And uh, for, from there, if you get involved in a wreck, that means you're you're up front trying to race for the win. So um, I, I'd rather I'd rather wreck than finish second. And I think most people who are in that race felt the same way. So um, it's uh, it's it's the one you want to win. And uh, we put ourselves in position for it and and and, and stuck around uh, all the way to the end and um, stayed in front of the mess for a lot of it. Um, had to avoid some of it from behind, and, um, and that, that's what it takes. Speak to running at Daytona, the 500 on last year, and finishing 15th. I mean, that's, that's not bad. It, and, and, of course, at the time, you weren't even a full-time Cup Series racer. Yeah, last year's Daytona 500 for me was, was definitely different. You know, it was my first ever Cup Series race. Uh, I had to race my way in because we weren't uh, on point, so I had, to, I had to beat out four other cars that were going to be eliminated uh, before the race even started. So um, it was a really stressful week for me, um, but, but to be able to make it into the race, we, we ran up front a, a good majority of the race, um, and got lost out on, on the last pit stop, and then got involved in the last wreck there. So, um, but, but it was an awesome experience, and I, I think it definitely helped me prepare for, for um, you know, Sunday night and, and being able to, to, to put ourselves in position once again and, and, and try and win the race. Daytona 500 winner Austin Sendrick joins us here on the program. Again, you, you, you know, this is your first full t- season racing, but you're not new to racing at the highest level in terms of NASCAR at the Cup Series level. Uh, but 
with that, speak about finishing ninth at Indianapolis last year, and I'm sure that gave you a lot of confidence. Uh, I, I don't think at the time you knew you were going to be full-time this year, but again, any type, type of reps you can get at this level is ultimately going to help you, uh, and, and it led, of course, to the, uh, the win on Sunday at Daytona. Yeah, so Indianapolis was my last cup start last year, and um, you know we, we were able to. And, and I would say half of the cup starts I did last year, I was I, I had led laps and been able to run up front. You know, a lot of the road course races went really well for us, but kind of never got the results we deserved. Uh, similar to Daytona, and um, it's kind of one of those things you kind of just have to keep going through the motions and, and trust in the process. And um, obviously, finishing in the top ten for the last race of the year definitely. Um, was it was a good note to fall off on, but um, you know, look, the Cup Series is, is the toughest competition that we have in in, in a motorsports. It's the highest level in the United States. So uh, for, for for me, it's 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 going to be a challenging rookie season. There's going to be highs and lows, but uh, this definitely gives us the flexibility now that we're in the playoffs and locked in that um, we we can go out and, and, and try and be um, uh, aggressive in areas and, and try and be impatient in areas and, and, and try and set ourselves up well for for when the playoffs start in the fall. Of course, you've been doing this for, what, close to 10 years now, if not more uh, than that. Let me take you back a little bit to 2019 because you were a substitute in Atlanta for Brad Kislowski at, uh, in Atlanta. Of course, then in the Bank of America race, the Oval Race in Charlotte for Michael McDowell. Even the, you were able to compete in the prelims and you ultimately didn't get to compete in either race. But take us through that. Like, what's that like? Uh, not only competing in the prelims, but then also, um, you know, having to anticipate if you're actually going to be able to actually race. Yeah, well, when, when I was in a substitution role, you know, the first one you mentioned was, was, was driving for Brad at Atlanta in 2019. He had, he had a stomach bug and couldn't practice the car. And I remember sitting in the driver's meeting before the Xfinity Series race that um, goes on on Saturday, and uh, I, I got a text that, you know, Brad's sick and they need someone to drive the car and, and they want it to be me and practice starts in 15 minutes <laughs> and uh, you, you try and collect your thoughts but at the time there had actually been a rules package change and no one knew what their cars were supposed to handle like it was the second race of the year right after the Daytona 500 basically the, the same week that we're in right now um, two years ago or three years ago and uh, being able to understand what my job was, what my roles were. But even at that time in my career, you don't know if that's the only time you're going to get to drive a cup car. And uh, so try and enjoy it. And um, the, the, funny enough, Brad ended up coming back and being able to win the race on Sunday after I practiced the car. So I felt like I had a bit of skin in the game on that one. But um, it, was, uh, it, was, it was definitely a cool experience. Um, proud, to, proud to now drive the two-car full-time. It's crazy how that all comes full circle. But um, definitely Definitely a unique opportunity and kind of a unique full circle moment. Last couple of thoughts. So back in 2017, you graduated high school and you're you're a North Carolinian in essence. Hours before a truck series race at the Charlotte Motor Speedway. Well, what was that like? Yeah, you know, I graduated high school and um, we're close enough to Charlotte Motor Speedway where I went to high school. When there were cars on track, you could hear them walking in between classes. So uh, I, gr- I graduated, walked across the stage, grabbed my diploma, and um, went over and drove uh, drove my NASCAR <laughs> truck into qualifying. It was uh, it was just like that. It also happened to be my mom's birthday. So I graduated high school, raced a NASCAR truck, and celebrated my mom's birthday all on the same day. Last thought, what's, what's driving that Mustang like? You know, I want that Mustang Mach-E. Well, what's driving that Mustang like? 
Yeah, it's it's obviously fast, man. That's uh, that's what it's all about. It's um, you know, I think with this new car that we've got, the next gen car, you know, Ford's done an incredible job. The car's done two races, and uh, Team Penske Ford Mustangs have won both of them. So, um, just just proud of that effort. Proud of proud of what Ford's been able to deliver for us. Not not just on the not just on the performance side, but but from the uh, from the management side as well. The Fords worked really well at, in, in Daytona from a strategy standpoint. So. Appreciate their leadership, and uh, it's 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 been a lot of fun. I've been driving for Ford since 2015, so um, I, I I've got a Shelby GT350 at home, and uh, I love I love every minute of driving it. I can tell you that. My man, Austin Sendrick, Daytona 500 winner, joins us here on Botch the Road, drives the number two Ford Mustang for Team Penske. Austin, appreciate the time, continued success in all you do. Yep, thanks guys, appreciate it. Your 2022 Daytona 500 winner, Austin Sendrick, joining us here on the program and wouldn't you know it again eased out just beat Bo Wallace by three hundredths of a second and what a win and as a matter of fact so the top four finishers and again it was just multiple crashes I had a chance to kind of peek at the Daytona 500 a little bit but again it ultimately went into overtime you had Bubba Wallace who finished number two You had Chase Briscoe, who finished number three, and Ryan Blaney, who finished number four. So your top four finishers, all under 30. Your top four finishers, all under 30 years old. So I think that's a win. It shows that, I mean, anybody, I mean, you can have success on any given day, right? I mean, you look at a, at a Bubba Wallace, but he finished, what, second in the Daytona 500 going back, I think, to 2018. So, I mean, even though he didn't win the race and some of these other guys didn't win the, win the race, particularly if you finished within the top 10, the way that the NASCAR structure is in terms of the competing for a championship, you want to get, you want to finish, I mean, you want to win races. There's no question about it. But ultimately, you want to be able to finish as high as you can each and every week so that you can be in that playoff in that playoff hunt. In the playoffs, it's the top 13 drivers once the playoffs begin. And I think it's like the last four races or something like that that did ultimately determine the NASCAR Cup Series champion. So you want to be in that top 10, no question about it. Um, you look and, and and by the way, for Austin Sendrick, he's now automatic, as he mentioned, he's now automatically qualified for the playoffs. If you win the Daytona 500, you autom- you're automatically qualified for the playoffs. By the way, I wish I had been in L.A. last week for the or Super Bowl uh, weekend for the race in L.A. It was an exhibition but, I mean, my understanding was off the chain. You had a bunch of performance. So that would, sounds like it would have been really, really nice to have been at. Still to come, Alana Myers-Taylor. But up next, our Black History Month. Listen back with Wayne Embry. You're listening to From the Press Box to Press Row. That is the voice of Steph Curry. Your progress from Davidson to now with Golden State. Where I've come from in high school into a small D1 college at Davidson. Uh, it's a great story, and uh, I'm just having fun you know, living my dream and riding the ride. That, of course, the voice of Bianca Belair. EST is in the building. And that's what Sasha Banks and I are going to do. We're going to 
uh, to WrestleMania. We're going to create history. We're going to be the first two black females to have a title match at WrestleMania. I would say representation is it's not a request, it's a requirement. And I'm going to, to try to become SmackDown Miss Champion. But it's more than just creating a moment and becoming a champion. Just by us standing in the ring, we are representation for women and for black women. And so that's an amazing feeling to be able to be that, be that person and be on that platform and the granite stage them all and, and be able to create history. It's just, it's an honor. That is the voice of Kevin Durant. I'm excited I get to play for them. They support us in everything we do. You know, it's a joy to, you know, go to work and, and know that you're going to be, uh, you know, they're going to cheer for you as loud as they can, no matter who you're playing. I'm talking about none other than Serena Williams. That was definitely one of the better matches I've ever played. I've had it just like that. You know, I was really focused, just really, you know, excited. Rob Manfred is the commissioner of Major League Baseball. Players that have been accused in their career of using performance-enhancing drugs, should they be in the Baseball Hall of Fame? I'm going to focus on one word in your question, okay? Accused. Players who have tested positive or there's otherwise been real solid proof that they were involved with performance-enhancing drugs, I think that Hall of Fame writers are entitled to make their own judgment about those players as to whether they think that performance-enhancing drugs or their use of performance-enhancing drugs should prevent them from being in the Hall of Fame. You cannot determine who used performance-enhancing drugs by the way a player looks. It's simply not possible. The one and only Michael Strahan. Always good to talk to you. Hopefully next time it won't be, what, 14 years you get to it. <laughs> Man, you know what it's good? And, and, and uh, you're encouraging people to be better and do better. And, and that's what I love, man. So thank you. I appreciate you. I'm talking about none other than Common. Well, I ended up in FAM just because I wanted to major in business. And FAM, you had the illustrious school of business. Then I found out that business was the key. That's what I wanted to do. NBA All-Star Chris Paul. That was great to bring it back to Winston-Salem State University, a uh, black college. Something that my city had never seen before, may never see again. And just having a up-close and personal feeling with LeBron James, Kevin Durant, Melodz. It was exciting. I'm grateful for those guys coming out. He is Stephen A. Smith. Congratulations on all the things y'all have done. Congratulations. Keep up the hard work. Went to Salem State. I had an absolute ball. The only part that was bad uh, was the basketball because my first year there, I cracked my kneecap in half. If I had one thing that I could do over, it would be that I would be there 100% healthy so I could really showcase what I could do. But outside of that, there's absolutely nothing that I would have changed. It was the greatest years of my life. Simone Biles. I guess I just go in there with a positive, open mind of just doing what we do in training and going out there and doing the best that we can do and just have fun with it. I didn't really think of the outcome, but I knew that we had been training hard and we were we were just ready. Greatest football player to ever play, Jim Brown. Muhammad Ali was a principal person in the country at the time, and he stood up and said that he was not going to the service because it was against his religion. All, all the top black athletes together, along with Carl Stoke, the first black mayor of a major city. So I'm glad you brought that particular incident up. Snoop Dogg is on the mic. Pay attention. Oh, man, thank you for having me play in a real way. I mean, I'm so honored. Still few football league has done so many wonders. We got over 200 kids that have graduated from high school. We have over 50 kids that have going to Division One. Kyrie Irving. Playing a Duke for Coach K. What was that like and how that prepared you for the league now? Playing 11 games, you know, a lot of people think that's not a 
you know, big package for you to become a better player. But for me, it was playing for Coach K. He gave me the keys to, to the car, and I was driving it in first eight games. And you know, being a part of something special like that and having a brotherhood built at an institution such as that one is an experience that you never forget. Ice Cube has been our guest. Hey, man, thanks for letting me talk a little music, movies, and sports. Hey, my favorite three topics. Hey, everybody, what's going on? This is Anthony Anderson, international movie star and funny mother. <laughs> and you're listening to From the Press Box. From the Press Box to Press Row is the sports talk show that is the voice and the talk of HBCU sports with a flair for pro sports talk and entertainment. Check the show out online at www.boxtorow.com. That's From the Press Box to Press Row, real, relevant, radio. Our Black History Month, listen back features Wayne Embry, the first black general manager in the NBA. We had a chance to catch up with Wayne Embry back in 2012 and talk with him about his career and being the NBA's first black general manager. When you became, in fact, the first black general manager in the NBA, was, was, it, was there a big deal made about it at that time? Well, there was uh, obviously by by the, the news media and 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 of course uh, it wasn't a big deal where I was concerned. I just took it uh, as another challenge and pretty much uh, had an attitude pretty much as I had it with as a player uh, that uh, can't fail and because you know uh, the short leash. And so uh, I adopted that attitude to be the best I could be, uh, pretty much the same attitude I had as a player, uh, and you can't be denied. And so I, uh, uh, again, persevered through the, the usual criticism uh, that one receives when they, when they uh, forward to achieve and, and be the first. Uh, and I uh, developed a pretty thick skin. Well, I've had a pretty thick skin pretty much most of my life. But uh, I uh, just knew that I had to perform and conduct myself in the proper manner and, and uh, do the very best I possibly could. I had, uh, had great uh, mentors in, in uh, those early years. Uh, I got to know John McClendon, Coach McClendon, who is a pioneer himself, and uh, Big House Gaines, and, and people like that were great mentors to me and uh, how to conduct my. And you mentioned the name earlier, also Donald, that was a mentor as a player, and I, I want to uh, make mention of the fact that Earl Lloyd uh, kind of this all, uh, meaning the African American players when they came into the league. And, do's and don'ts and how to best conduct ourselves to, to survive. And, uh, and then uh, I had great mentors in Pete Newell, who was of the Lakers and, and, uh, and several others who, who kind of adopted me uh, into the general manager's uh, kind of club, so to speak. And and uh, so, you know, it helped facilitate my my uh, early years uh, growth as a general manager. Wayne Embry, 
the first black general manager in the NBA, joins us here on the program. Let, let me just uh, uh, change gears or switch gears just a little bit, Mr. Embry, as we uh, I mentioned, you know, Bill Russell. And we talked about Bill Russell and Earl Lloyd and, of course, Earl Lloyd, the first black player in the NBA, Bill Russell, the first black coach, you the first black general manager. Why do you think uh, that the NFL, Major League Baseball, et cetera, is so far behind uh, the NBA. I mean, you know, when you see coaches on the on the sideline now in the NBA, it's no big deal. But like in the NFL and in and, and Major League Baseball, it's sort of like, you know, it's sort of like is a big deal. Why do you think the, you know, NFL, the, the NBA is so far ahead of the rest of the major sports? Well, the NBA, the NBA was a little more progressive early on, uh, notwithstanding my hero, Jackie Robinson, uh, broke the <clears throat> color bear. In, in baseball, but uh, I think, uh, yes, they were a little behind the NBA in, uh, in front office positions. I think they've made great progress in recent years. Uh, I think Bud Feeling's been a, uh, kind of a, uh, I don't know, he's, he's, he's mo- motivated the ownership to take a good look and, and uh uh, I think a terrific job in, in, in that area. Uh, and I think football makes progress uh, in recent years as well, uh, given uh, Lee Gunji and, and uh, uh, Levy Smith and people like that who have just come forth and done a terrific job. And so uh, I think they've, they've done a, a terrific job in, in, in bringing parity oh, in, in the other sports. And uh, so I, I think, you know, it goes back to, uh, uh, you know, the King and the entire civil rights movement. I think I was uh, given my opportunity because West Pavillon, who was just a very forward-thinking person, uh, thought it important at the time to, to uh, name me general manager uh not that he wanted something, but uh, he uh, he was very forward-thinking and didn't care uh, what criticism may come his way as a result. And so uh, I think a large of that is due to the efforts of our great leader, Dr. King. Absolutely. And, you know, you had success uh, as the general manager of the the Bucks, you know, you talk about folks like Lou Alcindor, of course, now Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and, you know, you talk about Norfolk State's Bobby Dandridge and, and Oscar Robertson, who you, you were able to acquire. And you, you were there for, you know, seven or eight years, and then there was a seven-year or so hiatus before you uh, became the GM with the Cleveland Cavaliers. Why the, the hiatus there? What were you doing in between that time, and then what led you to then become the general manager of the Cleveland Cavaliers beginning in 1986? Well, after uh, things didn't work out in, in uh, Milwaukee with ownership change and that I, I uh, uh, was told that uh, my services no longer needed. At this time, uh, I might add that I had uh, uh, designed as general manager because of the change and ownership and uh, the prospects of my continuing my career didn't look very bright. And I was in the McDonald's business at the time, and other business, had other business ventures. 
and uh, was quite frankly ready to leave uh, the sport, a uh, sport that I love so much. And uh, Indiana called and asked if I'd be interested in being an advisor. And so I went there for a year as, as a consultant. And while there, uh, Cleveland was looking for a general manager, and I get a call from Cleveland, and Red Arback had recommended me for the job in Cleveland. So uh, quite naturally, I was interested in because I grew up in Ohio, and it was like to move back home. And I became general manager of, of uh, Nature of Cleveland, and so I had uh, another 13, 14 years there as GM. And so uh, that's kind of how my career uh, uh, advanced. Absolutely, and, and you know I hate to to mention this, but boy, be, being the general manager of the Cleveland Cavaliers did a great job. But boy, uh, you know a guy by the name of Michael Jordan was was giving you heck during that time, the early the early part of that time. <laughs> well, yes, overcome Michael, but we you know we had some great years, and uh, we had I thought a terrific team, uh, and maybe uh, one through twelve better than than the Chicago Bulls, uh, except we just couldn't overcome his greatness. <laughs> and uh, so uh, we had to you know, fight him for three or four years there and, and uh, couldn't, just couldn't beat him. Yeah, because, I, you know, I remember, you know, you, you talk about guys like Brad Doherty and 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 Nance come. I mean, it, 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 there were some really good players that you were able to bring into Cleveland and to develop, and et cetera. And then, of course, in 1992, you were named the NBA Executive of the Year. W- what were your feelings then when that was announced? Well, you know, it's always good to be recognized by your peers, and <clears throat> so that, of course, is 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 a result of, of how you do your job. But you don't uh, go into the job saying I'm the executive of the year. You just go into the job wanting to do the very best you possibly can, and hopefully uh, uh, you'll get positive results. And when you get positive results, that's what brings on those type of honors, I guess. Certainly. And then again, in in in, in 1998, you were named the the executive of the year. And then you know, then I guess once you left. Cleveland, were you? Um, you mentioned the first time around, kind of trying to get out. Did you feel like you had your fill of of being a, a general manager? I know you did come back in an interim capacity with the with the Raptors in '06, but did you feel at that time like you had had your your fill of being a general manager in the NBA? I, of course, moved on in age, and and uh, uh, I know how to do a job one way, and that's give the as I said earlier, 150% or 200%. And I just felt that, uh, you know, I couldn't give it that back. So I felt, you know, I just needed a reduced role. And so the reduced role was to become an advisor. And uh, it's been a great experience in, in Toronto. Uh, terrific people I work with. And we haven't gotten the results on the court yet as we will and we hope to. But, I'm very much content in what I do now, and uh, I feel I, I feel I've been very blessed to have had the career that I've had, and uh, I just uh, uh, am 
very satisfied at this stage of life to do what I'm doing, and, and I, uh, I'll take much joy in mentoring uh, younger uh, GMs, and uh, particularly young black GMs who, who aspire, who, who uh, want to have the careers I had and feel blessed. But I must say that I also advise uh, all young aspiring uh, management And when you think of progressiveness in the world of sports, at pro sports at the highest level, you always think of the NBA, although the NBA had its issues as all of the sports leagues had, but it was the NBA that was first in terms of hiring black coaches or black assistant coaches, black coaches, and then ultimately Wayne Embry. And again, He was instrumental in that trade that brought Oscar Robertson to the Milwaukee Bucks. You talk about Bobby Dandridge, drafted Bobby Dandridge. You already had Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, then known as Lou Alcindor there. And that was a formidable Milwaukee Bucks team that ultimately won the NBA championship. And he went on to have a great career, Raptors and the Cleveland Cavaliers as well. We'll be right back. Find the Box to Row YouTube page for conversations with stars like Abari Hardware, Brandy, Michael Strahan, and with some of our favorite sports guests over the years. Hello, my name is Precious Rose Dunlap, and this is my mother, Michelle Timberlake Roll, founder of Marjorie's Beef Jerky Incorporated. We would at this time like to thank our new customers as well as our repeating customers for your business. For every one million orders that we receive, our company is giving $2 million away to the bottom of 400 of our paid customers. You see, that's the way we roll. So come place an order at www.marjoriesbeefjerky.com. That's www.marjoriesbeefjerky.com. Marjorie's Beef Jerky is the best tasting beef jerky on this planet. Marjorie's Beef Jerky. Yeah, that's right, because that's the way we roll. On Box to Row. The old renaissance is the new renaissance. Standing on tradition while embracing the spirit of distinction. This is the Harlem Brewing Company. Uniquely crafted beer brewed to deliver a taste, a sound, and a feeling that can only be described in one way. Harlem style. So come and take a trip on the A-Train with our Harlem Sugar Hill Golden Ale and our Harlem Renaissance Whitbeer, the neighborhood original. Sponsored by Harlem Beer Distributing North Carolina. Served in total wine all over North Carolina. Fresh Market in North Carolina and Virginia. Weaver Street Market in Raleigh, Durham, Carborough, and Hillsboro. You can also purchase in Durham at Zwelly's, Saltbox, Sam's Bottle Shop, and Bull McCabe's. And in Greensboro at Elm Street Lounge and Cooper's Ale House. It's Donald Ware from the press box to press row. Was the dunk contest as bad as everybody says it was? I don't know. Like, I I mean, we can talk about who should have been in the dunk contest. Doesn't mean that whomever people thought should have been in the dunk contest would have made it even better. I thought Obi Toppin 
uh, was excellent. I thought his last dunk was very creative, tapping it off of the backboard and dunking it through. Like, that's not easy. And you had to see the replay. Maybe in live, live it didn't look like that spectacular. But when you went back and looked at it via replay, uh, it it was pre- – I mean, that that's pretty good, you know, to be able to – uh, still hold the ball, tap it, and then be able to dunk it in from the side. I mean, I didn't think that the dunk contest was as bad as everybody said that it was and that it needs to be revamped. Every so often, we say these things, right? Like, uh, why, going back maybe, you know, I don't know, six or seven years ago, we need to see LeBron in the dunk contest. Of course, early on in his career, he was in the dunk contest. But the guys today, the players today, are much more athletic than the players of yesterday, even with respect to classic matchups like Michael Jordan and Dominique Wilkins. I mean, those were classic matchups. And that's when the dunk contest, there was a lot of creativity. But I think as the years have progressed, I think the players have gotten much more creative. And in any given year, right, you're going to have a dunk contest that may not be as great as some people would like. It doesn't mean we need to get rid of the dunk contest. It doesn't mean we need to we need to uh, really, I mean, like really revamp the dunk contest. It doesn't mean that certain guys should participate that don't want to participate. If a Zach Levine doesn't want to participate, doesn't participate, is unable to participate. Then he then he shouldn't participate. I mean, it takes, it, I mean, it takes some time to really come up with some of these dunks, and not only time to think of the creativity of some of these dunks because that's ultimately what people are asking for. Then you have to go out and practice it, and so yeah, I mean, you had some lulls in the action. You had some guys that missed some dunks. I, I thought, oh man, who, um, um, what's my man's name? His name is escaping me. Uh, that dunked in his Timberlands. Like, I thought that was ultimately create Cole Anthony from Carolina, as a matter of fact. I thought that was ultimate. I-, I thought that was very creative. Yeah, it took him a couple of times. But, I mean, have you worn Tims? Right? And I thought, I really thought that the judges gave him a low score. Now, I think some of that has to do with the age of some of the judges, right? Because, you know, Dr. J., Probably didn't wear any Tims, right? Isaiah Thomas probably didn't wear any Tims. But I'm saying that was very creative, and yeah, it took him a couple of times, but those things are heavy, right? So, I, I listen, calm down about the dunk contest. Like, it's not the end of the world. You're going to have some years where the dunk contest isn't ultimately going to be great. This was maybe one of those years. Yeah, it wasn't great, but... Doesn't mean we need to revamp the dunk contest. Uh, you know, I I just think, we, and you know what happens. One year it's not creative, then everybody cries about it. Then we have guys that are ultimately um, that ultimately participate, and then the next year we're talking about how great it is. We got to stop sometime living in the moment. Calm down. It will be okay. So. Uh, Not the second half of the season, but ultimately, after the break, ultimately, what are some of the teams in the NBA 
going to do? Are we going to see the 76ers be able to make a run uh, with James Harden now and Joel Embiid? I mean, the 76ers currently right now sitting in third place. So they're already right where they want to be, only a couple of games out from the top spot. Listen, the 76ers got better from an addition by subtraction standpoint. I mean, it wasn't like Ben Simmons was playing, okay, and then you trade him for James Harden. Now, if we had seen the Ben Simmons that last played, and that was the Ben Simmons that was currently playing for the 76ers, and then you made the trade, then you got exponentially better. I mean, I think I think you got exponentially better anyway because there was nobody there, right? There was no Ben Simmons even playing. Now, again, you lose a big-time shooter in Seth Curry. Tobias Harris, is he that guy? Is he that consistent guy? Can he be that guy to step up? Seth Curry, absolutely fantastic. Remember, Seth Curry, some years, a couple of years ago, was a guy that was coming off the bench. Now he's a bona fide, he was a bona fide starter for the 76ers and giving him a lot of firepower from three-point range. That's a big loss for the 76ers. Obviously, James Harden adds a lot. I just don't think James Harden is that kind of player that's ultimately going to win an NBA championship. He forces his way out of too many situations, and you can try to tell me I'm wrong about that. And, you know, I'm all for player empowerment to a certain degree. But I think just sometimes, and and, and it's similar, and again, I try not to never to compare pro sports with college sports, but the way that James Harden has acted in terms of forcing his way out is very much like the transfer portal. If it doesn't work out, you don't like your surroundings, you cry about it, and you go into the transfer portal. And in in in, in Harden's situation, he goes and asks for another trade. We'll see ultimately what happens. I mean, I look at the Nets uh, right now. I mean, the Nets are right in that last playoff spot, play-in game type of situation currently. But again, Kyrie Irving and the vaccine mandate, being lifted, a heavy Kevin Durant, uh, Ben Simmons when he comes back. Uh, you look at Seth Curry, Patty Mills. And by the way, the Nets also picked up Drogic. Now, I mean, he's an older player, what, 35, 36 years old. But, I mean, he can spell you at that point guard position, right? Like you've got a plethora of, of guys that can run the point, whether it's Kyrie whether it's Patty Mills, whether it's Drogic, right? Like that's a really good – that's a good situation to have. Now, I mean, he's not going to be that guy that he was even going back a couple of years ago with Miami. I think he I think he ultimately got hurt down the stretch when the Heat uh, competed against the Lakers in the championship game and, you know, maybe at some point in the playoffs. Not going to even be that guy, but if he can be – even give you, you know, 15 to 17 solid minutes a game. Uh, he, we know he can shoot the basketball. Uh, he's, he was more, really more to me of an underrated player. Uh, not, a, not necessarily underrated, but a, a player we didn't talk enough about that could really do some things, shoot the ball. He could really handle the basketball and run the point. If he can give you some semblance 
of that kind of player from even a couple of years ago. I mean, I think that's a really big addition ultimately for the Nets. You know, the Bucks are wallowing right around, you know, that number five, number four spot. I mean, we'll see. Can the Cavaliers continue to do uh, ultimately what the Cavaliers are doing really as the surprise of the NBA? I don't I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, you, you hold that number four, that number five spot, like that's nothing to really sneeze at, and we only have about between 21 and 23 games remaining. Can the Heat uh, and the Bulls continue to battle for that top spot? I would say ultimately yes, because the Bulls aren't even 100% uh, right now, what will the Celtics do? What will the Raptors do? The Hawks made it to the Eastern Conference Finals last year. What ultimately can the Hawks do? I think it's going to be an, a tough climb. But again, who knows? Remember when Nate McMillan came on as the head coach, and I get it. He wasn't. He was an interim head coach. He had, was an assistant, then came on, and Atlanta went on that run. I mean, they were able to get the Hawks were able to get it done last year. Does could that translate to this season? We'll see. I mean, it's it, you, you've had a whole, you know, if you're Nate McMillan and his staff, I mean, you've had a whole, you know, week and some change to really look at what's going on, look at what you're doing, and really make some adjustments. And that's where I like Nate McMillan from a head coaching perspective in terms of some of the adjustments he can ultimately make. I look at the Grizzlies, very good, very young team. John Morant is an outstanding player, a superstar in this league. Can the Grizzlies continue to keep pace with the Warriors, uh, be able to catch up with the Suns? I mean, it begs the question, can the Warriors, uh, be? would they be able to catch the Suns with a third of the season remaining and being about, what, six to seven games out? I mean, that, that's, a, that's a tall task because, to me, even with Chris Paul possibly being out the rest of the regular season, I think the Suns have – even if the Suns go 500 the rest of the season, or let's say – I think they'll do better than 500. Let's say they win 55 to 60% of their games the rest of the season. I think that's enough to hold off. Uh, a charging Warriors team who could get a James Weissman uh, back. We'll see how that goes. You know, the Jazz, I mean, I can't really, you know, <laughs> you know the Jazz, I mean, I, I, you know, did better last year than this year. We'll see. I don't know. What's Jamal Murray's status? Like, will we see Jamal Murray this year? If we do, I don't know if it's going to be enough time for the Nuggets to ultimately make a run. I like what the Timberwolves are ultimately doing, but, I mean, they're not going to be uh, competitive ultimately. So I, I like, you know, the Suns, the Warriors, the Grizzlies, I think, are the teams to beat in the West. And I still, I, I don't know, between the Warriors and the Suns, like, man, it's it's tough because I've got to, you know, again, I think if Steph Curry is back from a little bit of a slump that he had, then that's going to be trouble. I think ultimately the Warriors may be able to catch the Suns, but it doesn't really matter. One, two seed, ultimately. I mean, I think the Western Conference Finals are ultimately going to come down between the Suns and the Warriors. My time is about up. I thank you for yours. Thank you to Austin Cedric for joining us today here on the program. Great content, great information, great conversations. 
can always be found at our website, BoxToRow.com. And always remember to support those that support you. Box to Row is produced by DW Communications.